though the events I'm about to describe are recalled from truth and memory. I write this not as a memoir, or a report, and though the tale may sound fantastical, chilling even, it is no bedtime story. I write this as a warning. There are many things in this world that feed our nightmares, that can make the soft hairs on the back of our necks stand up. Sounds that betray what might be lurking behind the thin surface of darkness. Sights we wish we could scratch out from the back of our eyes. Thoughts that intrude into our minds and violate our reason. But there is only one thing that truly has the power to haunt us. The ghosts of our own decisions. Nineteen forty one. I was stationed on the south coast as a signals intelligence operative at Beachy Head in East Sussex, as far into the channel as one could be. A Y station had been established there by the RAF and Navy to intercept radio signals from enemy U boats trying to contact their headquarters on land. Our role was to intercept and record any encoded communications and send them directly to our friends at Bletchley. The operation had two halves. The first undertook high-frequency direction finding and was based in the main building. It was a large Edwardian house, set back from the coast, which had been remodelled by the forces in 39 for radio communication purposes. A team of three operatives could determine the bearing of an enemy signal within six seconds of interception. The other half of the operation was signal recording, in which I was based. We worked alone, in shifts. Four hours on, eight hours off, in a small hut half a mile from the main house. It was accessed by a chalky path leading up to the edge of the cliffs where the signal was clearest. The hut had to be situated far from the house in order to prevent interference. In theory, this made tuning into a signal much easier. On a good day, we could transcribe enemy communications from up to 15 miles at sea. However, in practicality, the task was nearly impossible. The hut was so exposed that the slightest wind would whistle through the thin windows and make the cabin unbearably cold, especially in winter. Being located at the top of the cliffs, the structure seemed not only unstable and precarious, but was also plagued by the incessant breaking of the waves on the beach below. Crashing and crashing and crashing until the faint dots and dashes of the signal on the receiver were drowned out. We could hear only snatches of code singing out between the rough drumming of the water. Eyes closed, shivering, listening intently for the weak beat of a signal. Dot. Dash, dash, dot. After an hour of steely concentration, the mind begins to bend. Reptilian, the body freezes, turning cold and still, while the senses are on high alert. Praying, hunting for a dot or dash. After two hours, the mind melts deeper, growing hungry for a sound. By four hours, near the end of a silent shift, One's mind has begun to slip away like a silk shirt, and the edges of awareness begin to shiver like a hazy mirage. It's at this point, when your mind begins to play tricks, you cannot trust your senses. Shadows flicker behind your eyes, and phantom signals tune in and out of the crashing waves, dots and dashes. On the night in question, late December of 1941, there was a notable change in the wind. The prevailing southwesterly had been overcome by a bitterly cold northern gale, which stormed 
relentlessly over the downs and out to the sea. It had snowed a few nights previously, and the ground had since frozen hard, leaving an icy shell as cold and hard as steel. I was to take the late shift, from 11pm until 3 in the morning. No one on the operation had been sleeping well. The old Edwardian house had poor heating and two people had contracted pneumonia, an officer and an operative. This meant the team was two people short, and as such we were covering more and more shifts while resting less and less. As the clock ticked over to a quarter to eleven, I awoke, tired and weary. I silently dressed, pinned my hair and crept down the stairs to the kitchen. Cup of tea, Laura. Oh, please. Dash of milk? Just a dash, if there's any left. Should warm you up a little. Anything picked up tonight? Barely. A few whisperings from towards Le Havre, but nothing worth writing home about. Here. Thank you, Leonard. Any news from your Tom? Not yet. Though I suppose news travels slowly nowadays. Navy? HMS Uproar. And when did you last hear? Not since Libya. You'll hear from him soon, I'm sure. I ought to go. Jean will be eager to clock off. It's ten to. Don't forget your scarf. Here. Thank you. And be careful on the path. There's thick ice by all accounts. I gently closed the back door and began the steep walk up the hill to the top of the cliffs. The path was indeed icy, and more than once the heel of my shoe slipped and I would trip forward, grazing my hands on the jagged flint that stuck out from the track. Breathless, I reached the top of the cliff, and I could see the hut 300 yards away. A dim electric light shone through the window pane. To the south, the channel spread out into the black horizon, like a swathe of crumpled silk, ripped by the northern wind, coiled by the stirring currents under the surface. The sky was cloudless. I stood at the edge of the cliff and looked up into the night. In front of me was Orion, the three stars of his belt beating through the darkness, the stars of his knife, dots of light combining into the semblance of a warrior. A sudden gust of wind. It snatched the scarf from around my neck and pulled it over the cliff. Clutching at the air, blindly reaching for the stolen scarf, I stepped forward into nothingness. For a split second, floated in the void. Then I began to topple. The muscles of my back tensed, and I twisted round and flung out my arms, catching hold of a tuft of grass. With a flash of light, I hit my eye socket on the frozen ground and felt a cold sting. Beneath my feet, the chalky cliff had given way, crumbling into the deep grey of the sea. I steadied my nerves. Breathed then pulled myself back up to standing and hastily followed the path to the cabin. Laura, crumbs, are you all right? I'm fine. Your cheek, it's bleeding. I just had a little fall, Jean, it's nothing. How was the shift? Rather uneventful. Some promising signals turned out to be nothing but fishermen, just static, mainly. Right. Well, you head in, warm up. Radio for Leonard, if you need anything. Will do. Good night. Night. 
When alone inside the hut, it felt as if the whole of the outside world could be swept away till there was nothing but the four cracked concrete walls around you and the pulsing of the yellow electric lamp on the desk. The setup was simple. An aerial on the roof was connected to the receiver, which we would listen to using headphones. The receiver had three dials, two for tuning, one for volume. Typically, we would tune into low frequencies used by submarines and wait and listen for enemy communications. The line could be silent for hours. Just the drum of the waves and the throbbing of the lamp to mark time. Midnight came and went with no hint of a signal. I stood up, rolled my shoulders, stretched my neck, already exhausted. One o'clock, no signal, no news. Two o'clock, silence. The wind had picked up even more now. I looked over my shoulder at the rattling window behind me. Through the glass, I could see the faint glow of the house down to the right, and to the left, the cliff edge. One more hour, and I would be finished. Free to return to the house and a warm cup of tea. One hour. <coughs> 17 minutes past two. The briefest static in the silence. I sat bolt upright and listened hard, finally tuning the radio to see if I could pick up the signal. Nothing. I waited, trying to block out the sound of the waves, the noise of the wind. I held my breath. There. The static again. Stronger this time. I listened intently for any sense in the signal. Almost inaudible over the noise, the weak pulse of a Morse code message emerged. Dot, dot. Dot, dot. Dash. But the signal was intermittent. I pressed the headphones onto my ears, blocking out all the other sounds. Clear again. I grabbed a pencil and began to transcribe the code. Dot, dot, dot. Dash, dash, dash. Dot, dot, dot. Unsure, I waited again. Dot, dot, dot. Dash, dash, dash. Dot, dot, dot. Dot, dot, dot. Dash, dash, dash. Dot, dot, dot. The message was plain as day. It was the Mayday signal. S-O-S. I panicked, unsure of what to do. The usual protocol in response to any Mayday signal is to radio back immediately, saying that you've heard their message. But here, we didn't follow usual protocol. This radio intelligence operation was top secret, and we were constantly reminded not to breathe a word of what we were up to to anyone. Radio communication was to be kept to an absolute minimum, using only short-range signals to contact the house and grounds. Longer-range radio messages were forbidden, for risk of revealing our location. No one could know we were here. Responding to the Mayday call would be like sending up a flare. But there could have been lives at risk. There could be a desperate man sending out this signal seconds from drowning. I was stuck, 
out of mind. I didn't know what to do. We had been trained never to trust a signal, to only listen and record, but never to act. This could have been a trap, for all I knew. In a fit of panic, I pulled the wires from the back of the receiver. The power was gone, and the radio went quiet. Just the wind left, and the steady crash of the sea. I sat for a minute, catching my breath, and trying to rub the tiredness from my eyes. My heartbeat slowed. I was exhausted. Perhaps it was just my mind playing tricks on me. Maybe it was a phantom signal, and there was no one really there. The air became still. It was quiet. The terror was over. Loud static hissed from the powerless radio. I covered my ears, but the noise was deafening. The light began to flicker, pulsing in short bursts on and off. The beak of the signal grew and echoed not just from the radio, but from the walls and the waves and the cliffs and the inside of my skull. The light bulb exploded and everything went dark. I blinked, waiting for my eyes to adjust. The hair on the back of my neck stood up. I could hear a faint tap from behind me. I turned slowly and was filled with the greatest fear and dread at the sight I saw. Through the frosty window, there was a lone, shivering hand tapping on the glass, blue with cold and flecked with blood. The thin index finger beat its message into the glass. Overflowing with fear, I wrenched open the door and ran full pelt along the cliffs toward the house. Sprinting, I skidded on a patch of ice, and as if shoved, I slammed face-first against the frozen ground. With eyes blurred and the metallic taste of blood in my mouth, I looked up and saw, lying limp on the grass in front of me, my scarf. The scarf that the wind had ripped from my throat four hours earlier. Stained with blood and soaking wet with salt water. It lay there cold and lifeless. Until, just as I reached out to take it, the wind once again picked up and tore the fabric into the night sky and out to sea. They found me 20 minutes later, passed out at the top of the cliff. I was rushed to the hospital with hypothermia and sent to recover for five weeks in an establishment in Ditchling. While my body recovered quickly, my mind took a long time to heal. But still, all these years later, though the nightmares have stopped and the fear has subsided, 
I cannot bear to listen to the radio. My story may have fallen on deaf ears. Perhaps you refuse to believe that what I saw is true. Some may say it was the exhaustion. Others might put it down to a bang on the head. But regardless, my warning still stands. Do not let yourself be haunted. Phantom Signal was written by Lucy Havard and Connor Dumbrell. Laura was played by Laura Trosser. Leonard was played by Connor Dumbrell. And Jean by Lucy Havard. The technical producer was Luca Panetta. This was a Guts drama for Seagull Productions. (laughs) 